Springtime in New York is oftentimes the scene of a great contest between the local citizenry and the weather. The weather invariably wins. Today, the elements appear to be taking particular delight in turning basically normal Greenwich Village into something surreal. But one man seems hardly to notice the driving rain, the steamy fog. He seems almost a part of them. Men call him Doctor Strange. My name is Conrad, along with my co-host Drew, and welcome to the 17th episode of Stranger by the Dozen, a weekly podcast where we recap the adventures of Dr. Stephen Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, 12 issues at a time. How's it going this week, Drew? Oh, hey, how's it going, Conrad? Wow, co-host. Sounds too official. The big leagues, buddy. Oh, geez. So much pressure. (laughs) Exactly. You can find the show on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, and on any fine podcast app. You can contact the podcast at strangerbythedozen at gmail.com, on Twitter at strangerbythetwelve, that's strangerbythe12, on Tumblr at strangerbythedozen.tumblr.com, or on Facebook or Instagram by searching for strangerbythedozen. Give the show a five-star review, and I'll read the review on the air. If you want to read along with the podcast, the issues covered this week can be found in Essential Doctor Strange Volume 4, Essential Defenders Volume 3, and Essential Marvel Team-Up Volume 3. And, uh, hey, let's get right to the issues here, Drew. All right, let's do this. All right, starting with Defenders 59 from May 1978, Tyranny and Mutation, David A. Kraft, Words and Colors, Ed Hannigan, Words and Pictures, Dan Green, Finished Art, Joe Rosen, Letterer, Archie Goodwin, Editor. This issue is dedicated to the Transmaniacon, which is a Blue Oyster Cult uh, song. (laughs) So this issue picks up where we left off last time with Valkyrie and the Hulk of the Defenders having been sucked into an extra-dimensional other world inside the Cape of Eric Simon Payne, the Devil Slayer. Um, and it's a rare chance for crazy landscapes and weird monsters without Doctor Strange being present. Yeah, it is a, bit, a, little, it is a little strange. Ha uh-huh. ha. Uh, you see what I just did there. Uh, get, I'm pointing to the door right now, Drew. <laughs> I'm just looking at you significantly. <laughs> it is a bit strange to see these kind of uh, spacecapes without any sign of Doctor Strange in them. Yeah, there's a lot of... I mean, this has happened to Valkyrie before, like when the world was destroyed by the floating harmonica. There was a bunch of flying rocks and stuff, too. It happens occasionally. <laughs> but in this case, the, um, the, the this part of... or uh, This extra-dimensional space is just the setting for Valkyrie and Devil Slayer to sort of have that conversation that always happens in superhero team-ups, where the two superheroes realize that they aren't enemies and should team up against another villain, against the villain for the common good, you know? No, that's classic uh, superhero team-up fair. It's like, first they fight each other, then they realize that they have something in common. Yeah. You know, like their mother's first name. Of course, that would be a a terrible story conceit. I don't know who anybody would do that. I don't... (sighs) This is a Marvel podcast, buddy. Uh, <laughs> the one thing I do like, actually, however, is that the Hulk doesn't do this. Um, at the end of this section, he attacks Devil Slayer and will remain antagonistic to Devil Slayer for the rest of the storyline. As as the Hulk will do. I mean, that's just what the Hulk is. Yeah, the Hulk isn't interested in your conventions, but he is interested in punching people. <laughs> So, eventually, Devil Slayer teleports everyone back to Doctor Strange's living room, where the sorcerer is still recovering from the attack by uh, the Agent of Fortune, the uh, that assassin guy with the chicken head last week. <laughs> Only in comics. Oh, uh, comic books. Doctor Strange explains that this cult, which Devil Slayer himself was once a member of, has succeeded in the mystic spell of Xenogenesis. We flash to the cult's temple, and we see that they have called forth a flaming demon named Belthazar to to lead them. Uh, Vera Gemini, the leader of the cult, explains the plan, and how it's only possible for her to bring forth all the demons into the world because she herself is half-demon. Belthazar commends her and explains how a lot of bad people in the world are at least temporarily half-demon, and there's like a picture of Belthazar, he's this two-headed flaming demon, or two-faced, I should say, flaming demon. And then around him are a bunch of, like, all the evil people in the world, circa 1978. Yeah, you get you, you get uh, some Charles Manson in there, you get some KKK, 
Yes, I, I also count as Son of Sam and Idi Amin, Pol Pot, and a couple other people who I'm kind of not familiar with, but might be like serial killers or something like that. Yeah, more likely. And just like general like baddie people. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to... Uh, I had meant to email this picture like to my mom and, and dad to see if they recognized the rest of the people, but I, I, I couldn't get around to it. <laughs> so Balthazar takes human form as the uh, commander of a nearby military base and just sort of file that away for later. Anyhow... It's clear to Doctor Strange the Eye of Agamotto, which was stolen from him by Agent of by the Agent of Fortune last week, is the key to be to the successful use of Xenogenesis, speeding it along faster than was ever thought possible. He wants to stop this process, of course. Devil Slayer agrees, and we're off. But not to stopping the cult, instead to an extended period of Nighthawk and Hellcat flirtatiously testing their superpowers, as well as Night, Nighthawk's new jetpack. Drew, you'll remember at the end of last issue, they said besides Xenogenesis, we'd get Nighthawk's new superpower? Yeah. His new superpower is a new jetpack. Oh, yeah. That's, okay. I mean, that's a strange definition for new superpower, but sure. Yeah. So there's a bunch of, like, crazy roller coaster superhero tests, and it's a, it's a long danger room sequence like you'd have in the X-Men, basically. One thing I should note is that uh, Kyle Richmond, Nighthawk's alter ego, trusts a whole bunch of like servicemen and random sort of dudes around with him doing superhero stuff, often taking off his like superhero mask and stuff, which is just bad, bad uh, secret identity identity-ing, if you ask me. But beside this test scene, which the Hulk kind of jumps through, breaking every, you know breaking up the training montage and sending the Defenders team into action, we also cut away to a uh, Russia where the Red Guardian is apparently been turned into pure energy and is now being tested on, which is kind of neat. <laughs> and then we jump back to Doctor Strange, who's in his astral form, infiltrating the base of the cultists, which is in this weird demon dimension. The cultists eventually catch him, and we get a chance to see the first of Vera Gemini's sweet demon form, which apparently at this point she can only take in the demon dimension. And also in this demon dimension is the Eye of Agamotto, now a giant, baleful, Sauron-style eye from Lord of the Rings. I mean, this thing is huge. Yeah. It's just boring. It's like drilling through like this impossibly dense realm of demons, basically. Doctor Strange gets tackled by a bunch of demons and forces stare into the eye, and he's no match for it. And instead, his astral form begins to merge with the demon dimension. Oh, no! Oh, no! Uh, back in real life, Devil Slayer uh, senses that this is happening, and he decides to try to combat it by teleporting to the cultist's temple in Mexico, where he confronts the chicken-headed assassin. Meanwhile, uh, Doctor Strange's body is now bereft of a soul, and we end the issue with that dollar bill guy telling the rest of the defenders that Doctor Strange is dead. And, you know, yeah, yeah. it's a bummer. That's rough. All right, cool. End of series. So let's talk about Dr. Fate. No, man. Dr. Fate's lame. He's got a <laughs> face in his chest. It's dumb. Yeah, he's, that's the weird onk thing. I don't know. Instead, let's go to Defenders 60 from June 1978. The Revenge of Vera Gemini. David Kraft words. Ed Hannigan pictures. Dan Green finished art. Rick Parker letterer. Francois Mouly uh, colors. Jim Shooter kudos. I guess he's the editor as well. This one is once again dedicated to the Long Island Oysters. <laughs> and the Blue Oyster Cult references are hot and heavy this issue. Oh, man. One might even say that they're burning, they're burning for you. Oh, no. Ah, ah, I'm as bad as that. I'm as bad as anyone else. Hot Conrad. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, so bad. So bad. Yeah, so it turns out, as usual, Doctor Strange's death has been assumed when he's actually just astral projecting. Like, every one of the Defenders yells a dollar bill for this, because it's like, this always happens. He's not dead. He's just out of his body. Come on, guy. He doesn't... We do this all the time. Just... Yeah. But it's clear that from how long Strange has been out of his body, that his spirit is in trouble. Wong suggests that the team bring Strange's body closer to where his spirit is, and the Defenders agree. Pack your bags, kids, because the Defenders are going to Delaware. I mean, Mexico. I was going to say, I mean, Delaware, sure. That's, that sounds like Meanwhile, a rip-roaring adventure. The, hey, I want to see the Screen Door Factory. <laughs> Meanwhile, 
In Mexico, xenogenesis is underway, though it turns out that it's all a trick from the cunning Vera Gemini, and all the cultists are immediately devoured by the onslaught of demons into our world. Super bummer. Dang. Yeah, the demons come pouring out, and Vera starts making her plot to rule the tide of demons in a game of dominance and submission. Which is totally a Blue Oyster Cult song, bro! (laughs) In the air above, the Defenders are flying into Mexico when that Balthazar guy from last issue, in the form of military commander, has their plane, a custom Nighthawk plane, match, shot out of the sky. Hulk sort of jumps through the air and punches the lights out of the planes of the rest of the Defenders, plus Dollar Bill, who's filming all of this, hit the silk. Uh, Back at the temple... Devil Slayer fights Agent of Fortune, the chicken-headed assassin, only to realize that there's an army of devils behind him, and Xenogenesis is well underway. Which, I mean, we, we, we knew that. Welcome to the party, pal. Yeah, this, this is totally happening. Come on. As he realizes this, though, we cut to a roulette table in Acapulco, apparently, where Vera Gemini and the rest of the demon, of the, of the demon lords in human form, and yes... The demon lords have taken the shape of various members of Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, Of course they have. (laughs) Play roulette for the fate of mankind. Vera Gemini wins. And now she'll be the ruler of all the demons. Okay, I guess. Sure. Yeah. This specific page is full of really odd turns of phrases that turn out to be lyrics or songs by Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, just a a quick note. I had always yeah. assumed that, you know, control over demons was going to be done via a poker game, not via roulette. Nah, man, because because they got to bring in a thing that would let them use the term uh, heavy metal fruit, which is a lyric from a Blue Oyster Cult song. Right, right, right. But that means roulette. All right. <laughs> <sighs> so, back at the Defender's crash site, Hulk and Hellcat run off to fight demons as Nighthawk laments the fact that he's bad at leading the team, and Valkyrie seems to agree, at least to herself, when suddenly, through the underbrush, comes the spirit of Doctor Strange, made flesh in a huge chimera of demons and craziness. It's all kinds of weird. Yeah, he's not really having a great time. It's just sort of like this big hulk of demon arms and heads and feet and stuff, and it's coming out of the top, just sort of a Doctor Strange torso, basically. And and he's got murder on his mind. Hey, why not? Uh, so the fight's on. Uh, Hulk and Hellcat save Devil Slayer from Agent of Fortune. Then Hulk starts attacking Devil Slayer himself. Oh, Hulk, you lovable numbskull. <laughs> uh, anyhow, Valkyrie ends up slaying the Doctor Strange beast, which returns Doctor Strange's spirit to his body. And now things start happening fast. Uh, Devil Slayer is knocked out by Gemini, and Hellcat either grabs his magic cloak or some other magic cloak which could teleport people places, including alternate dimensions. Meanwhile, a now-conscious Doctor Strange sends Nighthawk into the demon dimension physically to grab the Eye of Agamotto. Nighthawk manages to grab it and jetpacks out, just as Hellcat covers Vera with the demon cloak, causing her to disappear. With Vera gone and the amulet recovered, the demons are apparently all instantly banished back to their home dimension in the span of, like, a single panel. This is apparently a side effect of the game of dominance and submission that Vera Gemini played. They say that term a lot in this issue. It's a Blue Oyster Cult song. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> Whatever. And besides, we all know that once you defeat the commander, everyone else just kind of, you know, loses motivation and they just stop doing what they're doing. I've seen that happen in many games. Yes. Uh, so anyhow, the world is saved, and now Hellcat has a sweet new demon cloak. So everyone's a winner. That's rad. <laughs> yeah, the next couple, the next issue or two, she'll kind of mess around with it until eventually people are like, "Dude, maybe like a cloak that can literally like pull demons into into reality." It's not something you should be messing around maybe with. Maybe we should, you know, keep that just get, keep that one locked up. Out. Just yeah, yeah. Eventually, she agrees. Anyhow, let's leave the defenders behind. Enough of those guys. Do some solo strange. Oh, yeah. And we go to Doctor Strange number 29 from June 1978. He who stalks. Roger Stern writer, Tom Sutton penciler, 
Ernie Chan Inker, Annette Kowecki Letterer, Petra Goldberg Colorist, Archie Goodwin Editor. So we open this issue with Stephen Strange and Clea in their sexy bed apparel as Strange recuperates from both the in-betweener and the xenogenesis situations. Sure, recuperates. I'm doing like massive air quotes right now. (laughs) Doing it, bro. However, they're interrupted by a phone call from Hank Pym, a.k.a. Yellow Jacket and other superhero identities. Let's see. Yellow Jacket, Ant-Man, Giant-Man. Just take your pick. Also Goliath, yeah, yeah. because uh, recently, which is um, recently the statue of the Black Knight, who we'll remember from the Avengers Defenders War back in episode eight. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's been so long. Has recently come to life and tried to take down the Offenders. It currently lies in pieces in the Avengers basement. Note that a recently is super relative here. The statue attacked the defend the Avengers in Avengers 157 in March 1977, aka over a year ago in real life. And that's still timely in the terms of comic books. Yeah, I mean, presumably they've just been like playing phone tag since then. Doctor Strange also tries to warn the Avengers about Thanos, who he's just learned about from the Inbetweener. But Thanos has actually already been sorted out by the Avengers. He's already been sorted out by the Avengers, Spider-Man, and The Thing in a Marvel 2-in-1 annual. So, good times. Anyhow, call of call completed. Doctor Strange attempts to get his Mac back on. But he and Clea are interrupted again by Nighthawk at the window. Go away, Nighthawk! Nobody likes oh, you! Oh man, Nighthawk, you're throwing off his groove, man. That's, that's real rough. Yeah. So, the mood thoroughly spoiled... Doctor Strange and Nighthawk go off to investigate the scientist guy who worked for Kyle Richmond, Nighthawk's secret identity, who recently died of fright in a locked room. The pair fly off, leaving Clea behind, and Clea is pissed. There's going to be hell to pay when Steven comes home. She's tired of being left alone when he goes on adventures and stuff, man. She's his disciple. Oh, yeah. So anyway, um, after some psychic investigation the highlight of which is getting to see what Stephen Strange considers to be acceptable civilian clothes. Hey, man, that is a pretty awesome, like, frock coat that he's wearing. Right. It's one of those Victorian coats with, like, the cape that goes on top. Yeah, it's awesome. He looks so much like Dracula that even random characters on the page remark, like, oh, my God, like, is that Dracula? Oh, check out that guy. Oh, wait, I got to go get some tickets to that Dracula play thing. Yeah. So we eventually find out that the uh, dead scientist was working with the supervillain Deathstalker to create a weapon called a proto-converter. So here's the thing about Deathstalker. Uh, he's a, mostly a daredevil villain, I find. Um, I really know him from being the primary bad guy when Frank Miller took over as the artist for The Man Without Fear. And he's got kind of an iconic look of like this trench coat and fedora kind of thing. Uh, or like cape and fedora actually might be more accurate. He can phase through walls, and his very touch kills you. Basically, uh, I just want to you know point out for any who anybody who might be a fan of terrible movies as I am, he looks an mm-hmm. awful lot like the Shadow. Mmm, sort of Shadow plus Dark Man or something like yeah. that. A little bit. <laughs> so, but so Deathstalker has this problem where his body doesn't really keep a physical form, and he often like tra- teams up with scientists to try to cure that problem, but then he kills those scientists. And apparently this time's no different. He totally killed, like, the doctor that was initially killed making the proto-converter and all that stuff. Anyhow, <laughs> Nighthawk and Doctor Strange are able to fight him off without too much trouble and blow him, and then eventually blow him up with only minor collateral damage to Nighthawk's lab. The uh, boys fly off into the night. A job well done. Oh, yeah. There's no problem. Like Nighthawk has, what, all of the money? Or at least not as much as Tony Stark, but still a lot. Yeah, I mean, he's rich enough. And, yeah, you know, it's just sort of a good good kind of villain of the week episode. Yeah. And so we move on to Doctor Strange number 30 from August 1978. A Gathering of Fear. Uh, Roger Stern writer, Tom Sutton artist... Irving Watanabe letterer, Phil Raish colorist, Jim Shooter editor. So this issue goes pretty fast, but there's a couple key points. <laughs> uh, Doctor Strange gets hired by the NYPD to clear out a sewer monster. And this seems like pretty basic for civil servants in like a superhero world. Occasionally, you're going to get super get sewer monsters. I mean, and, so, and of course, being in New York, they have like 
no end of choices for superheroes to call upon. Yeah. Well, they also have a lot of sewer monsters. So that, yeah, that too. And it's so, yeah, you, you just want to have some super, some superheroes in your Rolodex to clear the monsters out. This is actually borne out in this story because in 1974, the same character that hires Doctor Strange hired Thor and Hercules to team up and fight a different sewer monster. So that just tells so, you that this precinct has a lot of problems with sewer monsters. I mean, every couple years isn't too bad. I feel like every, I, I bet every precinct has a couple. <laughs> so another thing to know is that the weather is terrible in New York City that day, and Clea is sick and tired of being left behind on missions by Steven. So she totally follows him to the police station when he gets the mission, and as she sort of barges in to their meeting, she, her hair's all like messed up. She's completely torn up by the weather, which is kind of a nice touch. It makes her just look like Doctor Strange's crazy girlfriend has sort of followed him to work, basically. <laughs> um, and it actually kind of. It's like it's to me it's funny, but also kind of humanizes Clea a bit and shows how determined she is to accompany Steven. Roger Sturd's actually been like the writer's been playing this up a little bit as sort of a strain in their relationship. And I'm here for it. I mean it's I think it's cool that they portray her as not just his lover or like a damsel in distress, but as his disciple, like a a magician in her own right who deserves to be treated as such, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's kind of something that they're also re-exploring in more recent issues of Doctor Strange, uh, mm-hmm. with the upcoming, uh, as of September 21st of 2016, uh, the upcoming Doctor Strange annual that is going to be reintroducing the character of Clea to the Doctor Strange series. Oh, nice. Yeah. I haven't been following the new stuff as much as I should, honestly, for someone with a Doctor Strange podcast, <laughs> but in my defense, it's a classic Doctor Strange podcast. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so she's coming along to help them fight the sewer monster. And it's and it's uh, it's a good thing she does because her help is essential. They in they as they're walking home, they actually get grabbed by the tentacles and pulled underground by the monster itself. So the monster seems to feed by uh, leeching fear off of off, off of people, which leads us to point two: the introduction of the big bad for the rest of this episode. As the monster feeds on Clea and Doctor Strange's fear. A mysterious entity in another dimension, all in black, sleeping on a plinth of some sort, comes alive. He is the Dweller in Darkness. The Dweller seems to think that this sewer monster is its ticket to the big time and the conquest of Earth or some other kind of thing. I don't know. But when Strange and Clay are able to defeat the monster, the the Dweller's plans are foiled. So he swears revenge. And now it's time for a proxy war by the Dweller in Darkness against Strange and Clea. Or it will be soon. But first, the Submariner! Which takes us to Doctor Strange 31 from October 1978. A death for immortality. Don McGregor guest scripter. Ricardo Villamonte and Thomas Sutton artist. Diane Albers letterer. Marie Severin colorist. Roger Stern, guest editor, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. So Don McGregor is a pretty cool dude in comics, the author for this issue. Uh, he's probably best known for his work in transforming the Black Panther to the awesome character we know him as today. And he's the author behind the first like dramatic interracial kiss in mainstream comics. And uh, Villamonte and Sutton's art I'm kind of warming up to. It's very busy, I think. Like Each panel has a ton of action and stuff going on. And while sometimes things can get lost, I'm starting to feel like it's actually kind of adding that kind of like trippy, dreamlike quality that we like in Doc- that, that I, I like to see in Doctor Strange. That doesn't, re- but in a way that doesn't require there to be like a Steve Ditko style spacescape thing instead of just regular settings. You know? Yeah. No, it, it looks pretty cool, especially this opening panel. Uh, it has a lot of like very small little detail in there, including something that just that just uh, stood out to me. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at the patterns along uh, Doctor Strange's uh, cloak of levitation, you mm-hmm. will actually see some of the names of the people who worked on this issue. Oh, neat! Yeah, <laughs> like on the right hand side, you can very see uh, Mc, uh, McGregor. I see that. Yeah. Nice. That's interesting. <laughs> but so this is the third of three uh, Doctor Strange is on the case for a one shot adventure story stories of this of this um, episode. This time, he's the one with the mission that needs doing, as his astral form is racing to Namor, the Submariner in fabled Atlantis. It turns out that 
some minor mystic named Alaric has acquired a mythical Atlantean sword, the Sword of Camus. Uh, Camus, incidentally, was the last king of Atlantis before it went under the sea. And then it was lost in some random battle later, yada, yada, yada. Now it's resurfaced and is being used to actively menace Doctor Strange because the sword will grant immortality to the wielder if used to end the life of a Sorcerer Supreme. That sounds very specific. Yeah, but, well, I mean, you know, it's got to be... You can't just kill anybody and get immortality, right? It's got to be slightly difficult. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Trust All me. Right. Yeah, so Doctor Strange needs Namor's help to fight the villain because for Strange to take down Alaric using his magic, it would basically destroy all of New York City and the sword's Atlantis base, so Namor has some skin in the game, basically. Right. Namor's reluctant to leave Atlantis because of some troubles he had recently, sort of in Namor continuity. But the com- as the conversation ends, Doctor Strange has to return to his body in a rush, and we see Namor heading out. We then jump to New York City, where Alaric breaks through into the Sanctum Sanctorum, and only Clea stands between the swordsman and the sorcerer. She fights valiantly, but is tossed aside by Alaric. Strange then returns to his body and goes on the defense against Alaric's attacks. When all seems lost, Namor shows up. Hooray! Oh, yeah. And seem- yeah, but he seemingly doesn't add that much because he's immediately, like, slashed in the shoulder by the Sword of Camus. Oh, no. But, again, double butt. <laughs> it turns out that this sword is double-edged. If it sheds the blood of a Sorcerer Supreme, you get eternal life. Shed the blood of the royal line of Atlantis, and you are destroyed. Oh, rough. Yeah, the curse of Zartra, who's Camus' wife, kicks in. Then, uh, Alaric's depowered and near death, Clea hits him with a spell. Let the risks all now be ending. Let the blade fly to its air. And in Dizak's cage unbending, shall the villain drift for air. And it works! Alaric is in prison in a mystic cage, never to be heard from in the Marvel Universe again. Huzzah! I mean, okay, so the dude is already dying, right? Yeah, seems like it. Okay, so why imprison him in a cage forever? It's Clay likes to rub it in, man. All right, sure. I, I mean, I'm just, you know, asking questions. You know, it's interesting, Drew. Mm. It seemed like he wasn't fully destroyed, right? Yeah, it seems like it's just his head in a cage. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what happened to that cage now yeah. in my in the current Doctor Strange continuity. Huh. Because you'd think, I mean, I've been following it a little bit, with the death of magic, you'd think the protections around that cage would be pretty destroyed, right? Yeah, but then he would just be like, a head floating through. But maybe, like, he's just, the head's what you see when it's kind of a TARDIS um, cage or something uh, like that. Yeah. Like, bodies in there. Who knows? Maybe with the death of magic, it might be a good a case yeah. to... He could come back. Yeah. Could do a little guest spot. I don't know. Totally. I'd do it. Sure. Why not? <laughs> so... Now we move on to Doctor Strange 32 from December 1978. Dreamweaver. Or sorry, excuse me. Dreamweaver. I, I had a feeling that was coming. <laughs> Roger Sternreiter, Alan Kupperberg, and Rudy Nebris guest artists. Jim Novak letterer. Francois Mouly colorist. Bob Hall editor. Jim Shooter editor in chief. So this one is kind of a setup issue. It's like one of those episodes of, like, Sopranos or Game of Thrones where not a ton directly happens, but you know a lot will come because of the issue. So we start just minutes after the end of the last issue. Uh, Namor's cut shoulder has been bandaged, and he's heading home with the sword, though he leaves the gem in its hilt, the Eye of Zatara, with Doctor Strange. This will apparently depower the sword a bit, so it's not just like a ticking time bomb of someone else grabbing it and being like, oh, well, I guess I'll be immortal by killing the Sorcerer Supreme. Uh, as Stephen and Clea retire to their chambers to commence getting it on, as alluded to in issue 29, <laughs> we join the Dweller in the Dark as he begins his preparation. So let's talk about the Dweller in the Dark, Drew. All right. He's all about fear. Loves the fear, gets nourishment from it, all that stuff. And he's been around for a long... And he's been away for a long time. Like, he was apparently a major player in the cosmic scene at one point because he seems to know everybody, but he hasn't been involved... He hasn't been sort of active in a long time. Right. It just it so, just kind of seems he's been floating around in this plinth in a, a spacecape for a while. Yeah. 
He likes his naps. It's a heck of a nap. And, absolutely. <laughs> Anyhow, so the Dwell in the Dark is a big, blue, buff dude. He wears a Speedo the same color as the rest of his skin. He's got a big, enlarged head with either, like, humps in his skull where his brain hemispheres are or some kind of headbutt, like a... A head that's a butt. <laughs> he's got a Voldemort-style nose hole. And instead of a mouth, he's got like a tentacle thing going on, sort of like Zoidberg from Futurama, but less animated. Oh, and uh, yellow eyes and red pupils. Right. So the Dweller starts sort of heading around his domain of fear, especially the Halls of Fear, where his Shade Thrall army awaits command. Uh, while here, there's a bit that, that I think is pretty funny where he kind of, he reaches into like a shadow and he pulls out the minor fear-based villain, Despair, from the shadows. And by the way, uh, Despair, Drew, yeah. it's spelled D apostrophe S-P-A-Y-R-E. Uh, all right. Holy crap. Okay. That's a terrible name. That's really bad. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Despair's hiding in the Hall of uh, Fear because he's trying to power back up his fear abilities after having been defeated by Man-Thing and Spider-Man, or Spider-Man-Thing, as they're known on TMZ. Right. I mean, if I was Despair, ugh, I would have I hidden in like uh, the closet of fear or maybe the bathroom of fear. I just think it's really funny that like Despair's walking around his house and like just kind of is pulling random fear-based superheroes or supervillains just out of the out of the holes in the walls, basically. I wonder who he's going to find in the kitchen of fear. Ooh, oh man! Now I'm envisioning the kitchen of fear, and it's pretty terrifying, actually. Uh, the exclusive home of Guy Fieri. Uh, anyway, ah, uh, so the dweller's disgusted, and he's but but he's also busy, so he's just like, all right, whatever, despair. Just don't be back here when I return. He and. Uh, the dweller ends up heading to the to dimension of dreams and talking to Nightmare, and he asks for Nightmare's help in taking down, like, you know, a mortal. And Nightmare's totally into it until he hears that the dweller's target is Doctor Strange, and then that Nightmare tells him to get lost. <laughs> God, I don't want to deal with Doctor Strange. Like, that guy's tough. Like, mortal? What? Like five... what? Get out of here, man. That... That, that guy's beaten me like five times. I'm not even messing with that. That's, that's No. Yeah, so he tells the Dweller to scram, and the Dweller does, but as he does, he grabs the soul of a sleeping mortal. A plan is afoot. The Dweller has snagged the soul of a young lady in a San Francisco studio apartment. So familiar. So small. I know. Uh, She wakes up from a nightmare and starts hearing a voice in her head, and she realizes that she has magic powers. Nice. She uses them to do what most people would do in San Francisco. First, to uh, cure her hangover and then make her apartment very nice. Well, yeah, of course. So, the voice in her head, a.k.a. the dweller in the dark, explains that she has the power of dreams, but to be able to do what she wants, she'll need the Book of Vishanti, which, of course, resides in the Sanctum Sanctorum of Doctor Strange. Hey, speaking of which, Doctor Strange is enjoying the afterglow (laughs) of... Um, you know, yeah. just yeah. doing so, and you know, did, just doing some magic chores around the house. Yeah, sure, yeah, as you do. So, so you know, he's sort of realizes that hey, every, everyone's breaking into the Sanctum Sanctorum these days. You know, Ghost Rider did it. That Chicken Head guy did it. That Alaric guy did it last issue. It's time to tighten up these defenses. Maybe it's time to you know get some proper defenses in. I don't know, call ADT or something. Who knows? Nah, you got to do it the old-fashioned way. Oh, Home Alone. It. Is, got it. Yeah. yeah. So he grabs uh, Clea and two floor-length mirrors and some incense and stuff and starts doing magic to strengthen the barriers around the uh, Sanctum Sanctorum. And then he's going to hang up some paint cans and, you know, put some, put some grease on some stairs. I mean, whatever works, buddy. Yeah. So the way they cast the spell is um, Clea stands behind Doctor Strange and, like, he raises her, his arms up and she has her... her Here's his arms up and her arms are down. And so it looks like a forearm Doctor Strange. And that sort of captures an image of that in the two mirrors that are on either side of them. Uh, Then they cast a spell, which is, uh, By the images of Icon, by the Darkhold's foul tree, let our ages grow thrice fold, so mote it be. And like, hey, it seems to have worked. The four-armed visage of Doctor Strange remains imprinted in the mirrors, and it's all pretty neat. 
all seems well until Steven sits, uh, tries to write something with, like, a quill, as you do, when the quill suddenly turns into, like, a full-size death bird. What? Yeah. Doctor Strange zaps it, but does this mean that, like, the protection spell didn't work? Or does it mean that the attacker is inside the house? Paul is coming from inside the house. Yeah. Clay is really freaked out by this, um, and Doctor Strange consoles her as the forearm Doctor Strange's step out of the mirrors and prepares to attack. After the break, all my dreams against me. Oh, wait. I, th- I forgot to mention, Drew. Mm. Dang. Uh, the lady from San Francisco yeah. that um, the Dweller in the Dark gave superpowers to, at, 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 at one point she uh, went full superhero with like a costume and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. She has like a costume and, and then she called herself... She took the name Dreamweaver, buddy. Oh. Hence the name of the issue. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, so what do you think of... So we're at the halfway point, Drew. What are you feeling about things so far? I feel like, for me, like the Defenders storyline sort of pe- petered out, but I'm interested in the rest of uh, this Dweller in the Dark storyline. It seems promising. Yeah, Xenogenesis really seemed to kind of just fizzle a bit. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. i like to see where this is going. Yeah, it's the downside of a story that's mostly based on a foundation of Blue Oyster Cult references. You know? Yeah, it's true. So, after the break, we'll continue the machinations of the Dweller in the Dark, and it's Old Home Week here in the Stranger by the Dozen podcast. We'll see a whole bunch of stuff from previous episodes. It'll be a good time. See you then. Welcome back. I'm Conrad. That's Drew. We are Stranger by the Dozen, and we continue our investigation into this solo Doctor Strange action. We're go and we move to Doctor Strange number thirty-three from February nineteen seventy-nine. All my dreams against me. Roger Stern plot. Ralph Macchio script. Not that Ralph Macchio. <laughs> Tom Sutton pencils. Rudy Nebra's inks. Jim Shooter colorist. Irving Watanabe Letterers, Mary Jo Duff, Editor, Jim Shooter, Editor-in-Chief. I mean, I was going to ask, what what is the villain of the Karate Kid doing? I thought he, Ralph Macchio was the Karate Kid, wasn't he? No. Really? I mean, sure, he was like some guy called the Karate Kid, but he's just some upstart. Oh, he yeah. didn't do all that yeah, training. He, he was the Karate Kid, <sighs> but he wasn't the hero of Karate was, Kid. I remember he that. Was that, not the, that YouTube video he was now. not the hero of that movie. Anyway... <laughs> All right. So where we last left, Clea and Stephen, they were under attack from forearmed reflections of, the, of Stephen Strange that had come out of a pair of full-length mirrors, and that's where we come back to. Clea is uncharacteristically frightened and damsel in distressy as the wizard fight between Doctor Strange and the devils wear on. And also wearing considerably less than she was last issue. It's true. She like she, her clothes are really taking the brunt of the wizard blasts. I feel like. I mean, like right, in just like the opening, uh, the opening panel, she's wearing kind of a slave Leia getup. Mm-hmm. It's very, pre- it's very slave Leia. Priest, well, it priests it slave Leia. That's why it's mostly pink cloth instead of metal junk, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um. So eventually, Strange calls upon an old school magic item the purple gem that leads you beyond the purple veil to capture the four-armed fatten, uh, phantoms. Now, I know, Drew, as a loyal listener of the, of the podcast, you're saying, but wasn't the purple gem destroyed by Loki when he and Doctor Strange dueled in Strange Tales number 123 in August 1964 in episode two of the podcast? Yeah. And that's a good question. <laughs> I'm theorizing that maybe Loki just rejected being banished beyond the purple veil instead of actually destroying the gem, which seems reasonable. Anyhow, the gem's here, so whatever, and the doubles are eventually destroyed. But as they are, Clea seems to dissolve into mist. Oh, Oh, no. no. 
But it turns out the real Clea has been asleep dreaming the whole time, and Doctor Strange was living out her nightmare. Dang. But, you know, since dream stuff was involved, uh, Doctor Strange assumes that his old enemy Nightmare is responsible, so he calls him up to be all like, What's up, bro? By using this spell, let the vapors of Valtor divide. In the name of the all-seeing, reveal my ancient enemy in whose realm all lay dreaming. Which is a weak spell, Drew. It, it is weak, but you know what? It's a, it's a phone call for him to like call up... Uh... A uh, nightmare to basically be like, "Sup, loser? What are you doing?" I, I guess, man. I want like I need an A an A A B B or an A B A B rhyming scheme. Yeah, this like this like ju- like blank A blank blank A thing uh, where two of the lines don't even rhyme is BS. I don't know. I, I I consider this like you know ten digits and be like, "Sup, loser? What what you doing? <laughs> Whatever. Why you doing it?" So nightmares like no way, buddy. It wasn't me. If I came after you, I'd do. I'd really use like my my mad genius to take you down. I wouldn't just empower a proxy pawn to take you down. And uh, he does say, "Beware your enemy, for he dwells in the darkness." Which, for the record, is a very good hint for an enemy named the Dweller in Darkness. No, that's like basically saying it's this guy. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see how it is. No, seriously, it's this guy. Just yeah. Go fight this yeah it's like if you were if if uh if a uh, duncan was your enemy and i was like your enemy duncans or something like that i'm not sure what you're trying to tell me here <laughs> anyhow as all this is happening uh dream weaver <laughs> is arriving in new york city aboard a kitted out magic carpet complete with a uh, tube tv and stuff Hey, man, if you're going to travel, travel in style, especially if you're coming from New York. Yeah, from San Francisco to New York. Or, I'm sorry, to, yeah, from San Francisco to New York. Yeah, so she arrives in, in the city and uh, changes her look to that of kind of a spacey hippie chick and walks into the sanctum to sort of explain a weird dream she's having and spends two hours doing it so that Dr. Strange and Clea just fall asleep from complete boredom. I don't know. I think she's going about this all wrong. Well, first of all, once you got to New York, she probably should just like stopped and tried some of like the local foods first because you, nah, you don't man. know when the next she, time you're going to be in New York. She's all business. Ah, terrible. She's the hippie chick that's all business. <sighs> so once Doctor Strange falls asleep, she uses her power to try to control him and forces Doctor Strange to give her the book of the Vishanti. She tries to read it and takes its power. But that's when Strange reveals that he was faking the whole time. And instead, the defenses built into the book pull Dreamweaver into a trippy uh, mindscape, eventually defeating her. Doctor Strange depowers and brainwashes her, of course, and teleports her back to San Francisco. They've won the skirmish, but the war against their as-yet-unknown foe continues. Meanwhile, the Dweller doesn't actually seem too bummed out about it, because he's got a few more layers of plan yet yet to go. And we go in, as well to Doctor Strange 34 from April 1979, A Midsummer's Nightmare. Ralph Macchio, writer. Tom Sutton and P. Craig Russell, artist. John Costanza, letterer. Glynis Wine, colorist. Al Milgram, editor. Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. So apparently this whole storyline, or this whole set of comics, is just old home week in the Doctor Strange storyline. After one issue with the Purple Gem, this week we get an early Defenders villain. Sure. Yeah, so we see Doctor Strange sort of go to bed, and as he does, a magic rat jumps on his head. This forces the dreaming Doctor Strange to travel to the realm of Nightmare, who has apparently rethought his stance of the past two uh, issues, and is now actively threatening Doctor Strange again. To do so, he's done exactly what Dweller in the Dark has done to empower a proxy to fight him. So and this it, is a, a proxy-proxy battle, then? Well, I don't think Nightmare himself is working for Dweller in the Dark. I just think it's sort of someone else biting the Dweller's uh, uh, tactics. But the proxy Nightmare is called is Cyrus Black. Oh, man, this guy. Yeah, you might remember uh, Cyrus Black from Defenders number 6 in the 8th episode of the podcast. Ah. Uh. 
He was that wizard who used Jamaican incense to project himself and a bunch of dream monsters to attack the defenders, who still soundly beat him. And it was kind of a bummer because, like, he couldn't even win in his dreams, you know? Yeah, it really bummed me out. It's just like, yeah. this guy's like, well, I guess I couldn't beat him in my dreams. <sighs> yeah, well, he's back, and he's super powered up in the dream dimension. Black and Strange have a wizard fight, during which Cyrus Black supplies some backstory for their feud which, like, seems to involve the sorcerer Xandu and the Wand of Watum, like they, they fought for it at an earlier date. But look, Drew, I've read every Doctor Strange comic up to this point, every single one, and at best, the event he describes either took place before the comic started in 1963 or in between issues of the comic and was not projected. At worst, Cyrus is just making it up. I'm going to say it's probably either, like, this happened in between issues somewhere or... He's just making it up. Yeah, that seems likely. Yeah. Anyhow, after quitting magic, Cyrus was recruited and radicalized by Nightmare, and now he's dropping the hammer on Strange for revenge. And it's going pretty good, actually, uh, until, Doctor's, until Doctor Strange casts a spell on Cyrus Black to show him that his whole life has been a sham and he's a total loser. It's a psychological attack. I mean... And it's super effective. I, I mean, Cyrus Black kind of had it coming. Yeah. You know, hey, these are the wages of sin. You know, you uh, you reap, you uh, sow loser powers, and you reap the whirlwind of loserdom. You know, <laughs> I don't know. That, that that didn't go as well as I planned. I'm sorry. Right. So, in the end, when as Nightmare orders Black to destroy Doctor Strange, instead Black uses his power to destroy himself, and it's another bummer. Honestly, <laughs> Nightmare then laments that his last few team ups have been rough. Like with Shumagorath, and then now. And he's got to go back to the drawing board to find new ways to defeat Doctor Strange. Until then, Doctor Strange is free to go. Get out of here. And that's sort of it. Like, this is a weird story, because it doesn't seem to be part of the Dweller in, in, in the Dark storyline at all. Like, the Dweller doesn't show up at all. But it's actually pretty similar to the Dreamwalkers, to the uh, Dreamweaver story we saw last issue. So I don't know. Uh, it just kind of felt like a... a opportunity for them to reintroduce Cyrus Black in, yeah, they in all of his loserdom. Everybody's just going crazy with the old stuff is the is the thing, I guess. <laughs> I mean, greatest hits time, I guess? I don't know. I, 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 honestly, I think it's just that, like, Roger Stern either like in, liked Doctor Strange when he was a kid and is bringing some of the stuff that he liked back, or just, like, suddenly someone found a bunch of archive stuff and was like, hey, like, here's some... Like, they, they ran out of new ideas for Doctor Strange and were just like, hey, here's some old stuff we can put hey, back in here. Hey, let's check this stuff again. Oh, wow, remember when we did that? We should do that again. Yeah. <laughs> so, Doctor Strange 35 from June 1979 of Knights and Pawns. Roger Stern plot, Ralph Macchio's script, Tom Sutton pencils, Pablo Marcos inks, Clem Robbins lettering, George Russo's coloring, Al Milgram editor, Jim Shooter editor-in-chief. Hey, so this issue starts at the Avengers Mansion, where Doctor Strange is finally getting around to answer the call he got about the Black Knight statue we saw earlier in the episode in Doctor Strange number 29. I only, like, you know, three months later. Uh, literally a year later. Oh. <laughs> because this issue is from June 1979, and that issue was June 1978. Man, uh, Stephen, I don't want to like you know criticize you so for it's, you know taking your time to think, but man, it's taken a year in real time for him to get around to geez. it. The and the statue actually attacked the Avengers back in 1977. So basically, for two years, the broken remains of the Black Knight statue has been lying on the floor of the basement in Avengers Mansion. <laughs> you, you figure that you know Tony Stark would be more proactive about you know, like, hey, hey, Stephen, you you need to get your shit out of here. No, man, he doesn't care. He just puts some some cones and police tape up around. He's got space down yeah, there. This isn't a proactive Tony Stark. This is like a, still a, like a drunk Tony Stark, right. you know? Demon in a Bottle hasn't happened yet, has it? <laughs> but so, actually, like, two issues from now, in the letters column, someone will bring this up and be like, what the heck? <laughs> and they'll say that, like, oh, like, you know, the Marvel timeline is um, weirdly stretched out. So, actually, it's been only, like, Maybe a cup, like a few weeks to to a, a month or two since all this stuff has happened. Sure, weirdly stretched out. I'm just saying. All right, whatever. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Doctor Strange reassembles the statue magically and 
it, we, we find that the Black Knight now has his sword again in his sheath. Uh, that shouldn't be a thing. Yeah, we'll recall from the end of the Avengers Defenders War, back in Episode 9, where we ever so young, that the Black Knight's sword should currently be in the possession of the actual Black Knight back in the 12th century. Right. That's, that's why Valkyrie had to switch from the Black Knight's ebony sword to her current sword, Dragonfang, etc. Yeah. yeah, so the fact that the blade is back in the present is worrying. Strange takes the blade back home to do more study. Meanwhile, the Dweller in the Dark, looking on, worries that Strange probing the byways of time could mess with his plans. So, he first creates a distraction, basically taking possession of some guy and having some guy and having that guy explode a hot dog stand and then become a big fire-slash-smoke monster. And then he starts trying to recruit some demon assistants while Strange and Clea are engaged in fighting. And the Dweller searches pretty far and wide, including some mystic dudes we've seen before, like uh, Taboro and the unspeakable Umar. Eventually he recruits a gargoyle-looking demon named Ludi and Ludi's old running buddy Ningal, who is currently stuck in a stasis cube with some random human a blonde dude named Murdoch Adams. Apparently their story's detailed in like a horror comic from 1973, Chambers of Chills number four, which I haven't actually checked out. But the basic thing is the Dweller probes their minds and finds that Murdoch might have the key to reducing Doctor Strange to impotence. The Dweller sends all three, uh, Ludi, Ningal, and Murdoch Adams, to New York City. Ludi immediately fights Doctor Strange, while Ningal lies unconscious in the streets of the city somewhere, and Murdoch arrives alive and conscious and immediately grabs a cab for 177 Bleecker Street, the address of the Sanctum Sanctorum. Strange and Clay manage to defeat the hot dog cart demon, and then Ludi, when he shows up pretty effectively with an assist from the Ebony Blade. Meanwhile, Murdoch Adams arrives at the Sanctum, and demands to see the master of the house, Stephen Sanders. Dun, dun, dun. Wait a minute, who's that guy? I don't understand. Yeah, man, because the reality folds. It's like how you don't remember your brother from that one time that all of our reality was refolded. <laughs> Dude, how many times does it tell you to stop messing with my timeline? I mean, I don't do it on purpose, Drew. It just happens, and it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, we move to Doctor Strange 36 from August 1979, The Man Who Knew Stephen Sanders. Roger Stern's scenario, Ralph Macchio script, Gene Colan and Dan Green artists, Joe Rosen letterer, George Russo's colorist, Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duff, Duffy editors, Jim Shooter editor-in-chief. This issue opens with Doctor Strange, Clea, and that Murdoch Adams guy in like a small plane flying across the Atlantic Ocean. A storm suddenly breaks out, and Doctor Strange goes into astral form to in investigate, and it turns out that it's that Ningal demon jerk making a big storm. As they have a big wizard fight in the clouds, Murdoch reflects on what happened in between this issue and the last one. So let's do that too, actually. Hey, Drew, yeah. do you remember back in like 1968? Yes. Before Doctor Strange was canceled for the first time, right. they tried to rebrand him as a superhero. Oh, yeah, and they gave him that super awesome blue costume. <sighs> yeah, that. Yeah. But they also gave him uh, a secret identity. This is actually the first time that Earth was destroyed and completely remade exactly from the ground up right. by Eternity. Yeah, we're up to like six or seven or ten at this point. I think five right. is the official count. But Eternity... We made the Earth completely accept that he made Stephen Strange have the name of Stephen Sanders. And was just like, you know, so he'd have like a secret identity, so he'd be Doctor Strange in the mask, and then Stephen Sanders, not in the mask, you know what I mean? Yeah, so you can like, you know, have a secret identity to go with that really awesome blue costume that he had. Yeah, yeah. So, but apparently back in like 1975, when Doctor Strange came back... Uh, to being like the master of the mystic arts and stuff, the Ancient One undid all that Stephen Sanders stuff, returning him to being Stephen Strange. They had sort of implied this previously, but no one really sort of specifically called it out, in my ex from what I've read at least. So the problem is that while that happened, that Murdoch Adams guy was stuck in stasis because of his fight with Ningal, so he didn't get hit by the Ancient One's mind whammy, and he still remembers the Stephen Sanders name. Got it? Got it. Good. All right. After sorting this out, Murdoch asks for help getting to England to 
to investigate Ningal's demon cult and ends up hitching a ride with Stephen and Clea, who are already on their way there for stuff related to the Black to the Black Knight's body. And the Black Knight statue is packed in a wooden box in the back of the plane. So that's just all this setting up. Eventually, Doctor Strange fights off Ningal, and the plane lands. And we learn that the Dweller in the Darkness didn't want to kill, doesn't want to kill Doctor Strange out outright, but instead plans to drive him to the depths of fear itself. <laughs> so, landing in England, the trio is met by Murdoch's fiance, Marcia Trent, who apparently is both still like down for him, despite the fact that he's been missing for six years, apparently, and is a long-time victim of the cult of Ningal, to the point that she no longer casts a shadow? That's very weird. Um, anyhow, the two couples part ways, but not before Doctor Strange palms some sort of, like, coin or medallion into Murdoch's hand. Anyway, uh, Strange and Clay head to a castle, and they meet up with Victoria Bentley! Hooray! The English lady with latent magical power who's shown up here or there, most notably during that big storyline at the end of the Strange Tales comics, when she was kidnapped by scientist Supreme Yandroth. Uh, she tries to put the moves on Strange pretty consistently, but he's all business, heading down to the basement of the Black Knight's ancestral castle. Yeah, and, and it also looks like Clea is like having none of it. Oh man, Clea is like... Clay is 100% like, like, like magical bitch face. Like, as throwing vi- so much shade. From the second Victoria shows yep. up. <laughs> um, so Dr. Strange starts to do a ritual with the sword in like the basement of the castle. And as he does so, the wooden box with the Black Knight statue arrives. Victoria receives the shipment and opens the crate up, but... Oh no! Instead of the Black Knight, the... Crate now contains a living statue of the demon Ningal. Victoria faints, and Strange and Clea confront the stone monster as it cradles Victoria in its arms. And we go to the finale of this storyline, Doctor Strange 37 from October 1979, and Fear, the final victor. Roger's stern scenario, Ralph Macchio's script, Gene Colan and Dan Green Art, Jim Novak Letterer, George Russo's colorist, Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy editors, Jim Shooter editor-in-chief. It's the end of the storyline! Yeah! Yeah, so it's time for the big fight between Doctor Strange and this Ningal demon guy. So, Ningal's made of stone, right? And he's giant, and that's a problem. Yeah. Basically, Doctor Strange blasts him to pieces, but he he reassembles himself stronger than ever. This happens like four or five times as Ningal constantly trash talks Doctor Strange. Also, uh, Victoria Bentley keeps throwing herself at, Str- at Stephen in fear, like, oh, help me! And Clay is getting increasingly jealous and angry at her. Yep. Hands off her man! She totally uh, magically gags Victoria by the end of the, episode, of the end issue. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Meanwhile, we also check in on that Murdoch Adams guy. He's chilling with his shadowless fiancée. When the fiance turns evil and tries to kill him, unfortunately for her though, she catches a glimpse of the medallion that Strange slipped Murdoch last issue, and she instantly dies. It's a bummer, but a uh, nice subplot, Murdoch. You enjoy yourself as you leave Marvel continuity forever. Well, at least they, so, they wrapped up his story and also killed off his girlfriend. I mean, hey, I, it's definitely possible. I have not read Chamber of Chills, so I can't answer you completely. <laughs> Um, in the dimension of, of fear, uh, that despair guy shows up with his ridiculous name spelling, and he asks the dweller in the dark, like, what, his, what the deal is with his plan? Like, what's your plan, buddy? What's going on here? Like, what's, like, what's a, your end game here? Yeah, especially as Doctor Strange manages to beat Ningal, resealing him in mystic amber in some outer dimension. And the dweller in the dark's like, look, man, like, my plan was to overwhelm Doctor Strange with hella mystical challenges coming out of nowhere and doing all this crazy stuff, and uh, that that constant onslaught of bad guys and challenges from an unknown source would uh, make him more fearful and paranoid. And he is, so I've won! Victory, Dweller in the Dark! Sure. I mean... And then he he just, like, declares himself the winner and goes to lie back on his plinth again. He's won his duel. I, I don't know. This seems really anticlimactic. Like, really, really anticlimactic. 
Like, it was just to sort of make, you know, mess with Doctor Strange's anxiety levels, I guess. Uh, sure. It's like, yeah, I made him afraid. I won. I'm going to go back to sleep now. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sure. Uh, Whatever, buddy. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I feel like I feel like so many of these storylines end with us just saying whatever, you know, <laughs> and like sighing. Like, I don't know. Uh, all right. Sure. I think, the, I, I think the problem here, to an extent, might be that they kind of switched authors from Roger Stern to Ralph Macchio. You know, yeah. and this Macchio and, and Ralph Macchio was sort of writing from, like, Stern's scenario, but clearly didn't have his heart in it, you know? So I feel like he was trying to wrap up the Doctor Strange storyline to get to his own storyline, you know what I mean? Wrap things up as quickly and cleanly as possible and be like, okay, let's work on the thing that I want to do. Yeah, seems possible. That's what I'm saying. Yep. Yeah, so let's finish up for this week, Drew, with Marvel Team-Up 76 from December 1978. If not for love... Dot, dot, dot. Chris Claremont, author. Howard Chaikin, Jeff Acklin, and Juan Ortiz, artist. Joe Rosen, letterer. Carl Gafford, colorist. Bob Hall, editor. Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. Hey, Chris Claremont, that's a cool name. That's, the, you know, he's behind all the X early, or, you know, sorry, the classic X-Men comics. Just in general, all of them. Right. And he'll do some Doctor Strange stuff, too. This is sort of the start of some Doctor Strange stuff by him. So, hey, it's a swinging Saturday night in New York City. Both Peter Parker and Carol Danvers, uh, Spider-Man and Miss Marvel, respectively, are walking around town, taking in the sights. Meanwhile, Doctor Strange is laying out tarot cards from a deck that just arrived in the mail today. Clea tries to distract him and take his mind off work. But he rejects her advances, and she's rewarded by being attacked from a monster that comes out of the Orv of, of Agamotto. Oh, no! It's bad. Doctor Strange and Clea are almost killed, and Clea's soul is torn from her body. Oh, no. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's real rough. He manages to... Uh, Doctor <coughs> Strange manages to summon Wong mentally just as he passes out. Wong's out grocery shopping. And as Wong comes running, he manages to bump into both... Uh, Peter Parker and Carol Danvers, who recognize Wong and decide to both switch into their superhero costumes and follow to see what's going on. And this is actually the first issue that Spidey has seen Miss Marvel's new costume, which is the classic, like, Warbird one with the one piece and the thigh-high boots and stuff that'll become her trademark look. So Doctor Strange comes to, he quickly rejuvenates himself, but he says that they have to hurry to restore Clea's soul because you just don't want someone to have their soul ripped out, you know? Yeah, it's real bad. Yeah. He suggests they start the quest to recover it by following the postmark on the uh, tarot cards he received. And the trio of Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, and Miss Marvel teleport to New Orleans. Once there, Strange magically disguises them, him in a suit. Miss Marvel and Spider-Man as a black lady and a dude with black hair, or a white dude with black hair, respectively. They, they follow the address to the Bayou Shack of Marie Laveau, witch, do, witch queen of New Orleans. She apparently set the tarot cards to warn Doctor Strange, almost too late, that his old foe, the Silver Dagger, is back in town. We'll remember uh, Silver Dagger from that scene where, from that story where Doctor Strange got trapped in the Eye of Agamotto and fought death and stuff. Oh, yeah, it had all the weird stuff happen. Yeah. yeah. That's one of Duncan's favorite stories. He's going to be bummed to see Silver Dagger in this situation, i got to say. Because um, it seems like, but it seems like the all the recent stuff that has happened, the, the Amulet and Eye of Agamotto, especially like the Xenogenesis stuff and things like that, has... Um, allowed Silver Dagger to learn some things about how to manipulate the amulet and cause some problems. Strange busts out his amulet and gazes into it with this spell. Great Agamotto's eye, whose gaze touches all the worlds. Turn thy, li thy light on the orb. Let the truth stand unfurled. Which is a terrible spell. I mean, okay, well, they're, they're, so it's, it's a blank A, blank A. Kind of, kind of. like... No, because it's like it's it's rhyming worlds and unfurled. I mean, that's right? that's no worse than like you know something rhyming dreams and sirens. But that was bad too, man. <laughs> like these are these are bad spells. L listen, man, I'm I'm just saying that some hip hop music. I'm is contacting really my bad. congressman about these spells, bro. All right, whatever. Like it's terrible. 
we got to work on the we got to go back in time and have to go work on these spells. <laughs> <laughs> but so this spell does seem to work, and we see inside the Orb of Agamotto that Clea's soul has been captured by Silver Dagger's goons, and Silver Dagger's ordering her to be burned at the stake, which is a bummer because obviously if she dies in the Orb of Agamotto, she dies in real life, Natch. Uh, there does, however, seem to be a way to save her, Drew. There is. Yeah, but to do so, he must master the Shiatra Book of the Damned. Oh, snap. The oldest, yeah, the oldest and most powerful book of dark magic ever. The Necronomicon is like a summary of Chapter 2 of the Shiatra Book of the Damned, all right? Like, just so you know. Meanwhile, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this, but throughout this whole section, there's been a whole bunch of goons sneaking up on Marie Laveau's Swamp Shack, just FYI. So uh, Dr. Strange agrees to learn the art of the book, and he and Marie Laveau, or his spirit and Marie Laveau, sort of peace out for parts unknown, leaving the disguised Spider-Man and Miss Marvel behind to deal with the goons who are about to attack. Oh, no. Yeah, total cliffhanger. Yep. Next week, if I'm to live, my love must die. <laughs> so how this week of comics, Drew? I so some of, yeah, I got some of the endings on these things. Yeah, I'm I'm bummed out with how both the storylines ended this week. Yeah, with like um, with, with, with the way that Xenogenesis ended, and with the way like the <sighs> the dweller in the dark thing. Yeah, it just seems like they get to a point where things are going where things are really like at their worst, and then there's like a finger snap and everything's resolved. You know? Yeah, it just kind of feels half-hearted. Yeah, it sucks, buddy. Yeah. If you'd like to contact the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at strangerbythedozen at gmo.com or interact with the show on Facebook and Instagram at strangerbythedozen, on Twitter at strangerbythe12, strangerbythe12, and on Tumblr at strangerbythedozen.tumblr.com. During the week, I'll try to post a bunch of images from the issues covered this week, so keep an eye out. Stranger by the Dozen is on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and any other pod-catching app. And remember, if you leave a five-star review on any platform, I'll read it on the air. As always, direct all your problems with Drew to Drew himself on Twitter at Neo of the Dark. I welcome all your criticism. Get down. Next week on the podcast, we'll continue teaming up with Spider-Man, first with Miss Marvel, then with Satana, the undisputed queen of Underboob, until the Goblin Queen shows up in the mid-80s. <laughs> These team-ups may or may not involve a werewolf Doctor Strange. They definitely will. Super awesome. After that, we'll get into an extended storyline, fighting Baron Mordo and some Native American-themed villains, and get to know Doctor Strange's next-door neighbor, Sarah Wolf. All that Plus, Doctor Strange will fight a dragon, will learn the secret history of Wong, and Ben Grimm goes fishing. Get ready for some awesome man-thing action next week on Stranger by the Dozen. Until then, faithful listener, I say, he turns toward the window, staring at the gathering fog that obscures his view, less than the fear which clouds his heart. He thinks... A Sorcerer Supreme has no choice but to be the ultimate wise man or the ultimate paranoid. And throughout a long and sleepless night, he ponders those words as the thick fog closes over the ancient castle and remains oppressively evident for much of the following day. My name is Conrad, and for my co-host Drew, this is Stranger by the Dozen. May the Vishanti guide your path. <laughs>